Hello and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe, I'm with Martin Spain, and in this show we discuss cars and films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. In this episode, we're going to be examining the case for and against Gone in 60 Seconds. But first, we have an awesome contribution from one of our fantastic listeners. Marty, we should have done this from day one, but you go ahead and... What uh, what have our listeners done for us? So, Sean Cleaver has very kindly put together a YouTube playlist of all of the video clips we have mentioned in the past 12 podcasts and anything else that is available on YouTube. It is exactly the kind of thing we should have done if we were more professional, so we have to take <laughs> our hats off to Sean. Thank you very much. Yep. Thank you, you Sean. Can, uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Cleaver Slips. I don't know what he slips on, but... That was very smooth. Thank you very much for doing that playlist. Uh, if we are more organised, perhaps we will put one together for future shows. But thank you very much for doing that. We've also had a message from friend of the show, Matt Lange, who picked up on a Netflix documentary that I mentioned in a previous episode called Shelby American. I saw it while I was scrolling around and thought, oh, that would be interesting, given what we've talked about in the past with Shelby and Matt Damon's interpretation of him let's say and other sources matt's review however is and i'm quoting here basically a recut version of the 24-hour war with less ferrari and more shelby couple of interesting new scenes but overall the original doc is more interesting so that's quite telling really so thank you for that matt yeah i wonder whether or not this gets a c minus review from matt because as he says they've got rid of some of the ferrari bits in the documentary Mm. and therefore his interest level has dropped significantly because they've taken the ferrari stuff out and matt does like a bit of ferrari he does yeah, I, I haven't seen this. I will probably get around to watching it, but at the moment I've actually started re- rereading AJ Bame's book, Go Like Hell, um, about the Ford, Ferrari, Le Mans War um, in anticipation of the release of Ford versus Ferrari on 4K video. 4K video? What am I talking about? I'm sorry, I'm a thousand years old. Let's wait for the 4K <laughs> ultra high def Blu-ray. No, I want to go to Blockbuster and get that unfeasibly big VHS box that was on the uh, shelf. That's what I want. Yeah, and yet contained nothing. Anyway, sorry, we're very old and silly. (laughs) Speaking of listeners, uh, Jack Wood, another friend of the show, has dropped us a message about one of the cars that's now, I think this is the third episode it's come into, which is uh, the Ferris Bueller 250 GT California Ferrari and I'm doing air quotes because sold at auction was one of the two replica cars that they used in the film. Apparently not the one that went through the break glass window. You'd hope not. Which has also been restored and sold for several hundred thousand dollars. But I think this went for just under 400k, given that it's got... um, it's had a full restoration, new suspension, carbon fibre body panels, believe it or not. Oh, someone's spending some money on it. This is also a manual, and according to the article in Road and Track that we will link to in the show notes, there were th- supposed to be three hero cars for the film. Only two were completed before shooting, 
one a manual and one an automatic, which would tie in with yeah what with, we, with what we found out earlier on. Yeah, so this one's gone through the auction block a few times recently, bobbling around the four hundred k mark. Sometimes a bit under, sometimes a bit over. So I think it's found its its level. But even so, four hundred grand for a replica for not. A, I mean, I know the real ones are like ten million dollars and and you know absolutely out of reach and mm. uh, kind of stopped being cars and just now objects of beauty that never get driven. But even so, four hundred grand. You've got to really like the 250 GT California, and yet know that in your heart of hearts you're going to be driving around in a fake one. See, with this, though, is it different? Because if you bought a replica of any supercar and you drove around pretending it was the real thing, you know, if it's an Audi TT and one of those Veyron body kits... Oh, (laughs) I know the ones you mean, they're terrible. Yeah, they're awful. But there comes a point, I think, with the Ferraris where the real thing is so far out of reach that your only option is to get a replica 250 GTO or something which you can actually then use. Yeah, it depends if you love the shape and and love... Because this is presumably going to sound nothing like it because it doesn't have a V12. Nope. And it's... I guess it must look pretty close. Yeah. But with that kind of money, think of all the other more interesting, genuine stuff you could buy. I, this this mm. blows my mind. I'm, I'm, I can't believe that a replica is fetching this kind of money, but the whole Ferrari market is absolutely bananas. So, you know, what do I know? I would say, though, compared to what we talked about in the last episode with the Bullet Mustang, to have a hero car from, from Ferris Bueller, which people go, isn't that the car from Ferris Bueller? And you go, yes, this is literally the car from Ferris Bueller. I think that in itself has value beyond what a replica would bring. And I think, what did the Mustang go for? It's a three point something million. Everyone agreed yeah. it was very low, apart from me. Some shows oh. I don't know anything. <laughs> so 400k for a hero car from an iconic 80s film. If Kit came across an auction block... Would that get 400k or would that get a lot more? I don't know. Anyway, speaking of things from previous episodes, we've had two announcements recently, which I'm quite looking forward to. The first is Drive to Survive Season 2, the F1 Netflix documentary, has officially confirmed a second series, which we all knew was happening anyway. But it's going to be available on Netflix February 28th. And word from the premiere was that it's good, but then I think anybody who goes to a premiere is probably going to say it's good. Yeah, I'm really excited about this because the last season was a breath of fresh air and has been acknowledged as reintroducing and promoting F1's profile, particularly in America, Mm. and bringing in a bunch of new fans who maybe hadn't seen F1 in a while or never seen F1. So I'm, I'm quite looking forward to this. It's the bridge that gets us through the drudge of waiting for the season to start because it's, you know, launch week start next week except they're all fake because the cars are basically just mock-ups and then it's testing except testing's all a bunch of lies because everyone's sandbagging (laughs) apart from Williams who are genuinely that bad and then it's the first race only no one can tell what happens at, at Melbourne anyway Mm. But we've got Drive to Survive kind of in the middle of that that will get us through and get us excited about this season by showing us last season, which was quite a good season. Mm. Um, And then 2020 starts, Mercedes win everything, Max Verstappen wins nothing, (laughs) Charles Leclerc gets a few poles, Lewis Hamilton takes his seventh world title. Everyone's happy, apart from Max Verstappen. And probably Vettel as well. Yeah, probably Vettel retires, Danny Rick takes his seat at Ferrari. We can come back and check on these in December 2020 (laughs) and figure out how close I was. Anyway, one thing I did want to note was the um, 
Drive to Survive season premiere happened and Instagram doyen Lando Norris, who if you haven't if you haven't followed him on Instagram, he is brilliant. He posted there to say that he had seen it and he could confirm that he and his teammate Carlos Sainz are in it. <laughs> I can't say fairer than that. In the last episode as well, we talked about Initial D, we talked about uh, Japanese drifting in all of its myriad forms, and my pick of the week was the Driftworks documentary Outsiders, which is now getting on for, I think, seven, eight years old, off the top of my head. Um, It's become a bit of a recurring joke that at the end of Outsiders it says to be continued or something like that, and it never has been, until now. So actually since our last episode... They've put up a Facebook post that just says, Outsiders 2, coming soon. And that's all we know. So we will have a word with Phil and Al and all those nice people at Driftworks and see if we can get more of the skinny for the next episode. But that's going to be a very, very interesting one to look out for. And we've also had, as of last Sunday, the Super Bowl, which, as much as we love sports, um, which is to say... Uh, <laughs> Apart from anything involving wheels, but yes, other sports are available for those of you who like them. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, we're interested. Otherwise, for us, it's all been about the car adverts, and we've had some crackers this year. We have to start with the Porsche one, because it's big and it's glitzy and it's Porsche and it's it's fantastic. It's, it's The idea is that somebody steals a Taycan from the Porsche Museum in Stuttgart. Wait, they've taken a Taycan? <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for you to make the Liam Neeson joke, but uh, anyway. <laughs> no, no special set of skills. But yes, it, it's, it's really good because what Porsche do is not only do they have access to all the cars, they get some really interesting stuff out of the museum, but they've also got access to drivers and budget. And it's pure Porsche. It's a really fun advert. It, the, the basic story of which is someone has stolen the, the Taycan out of the Porsche Museum and the security guards all jump in various other cars from the Porsche Museum to chase it down, including a 917, the 918 Super Hypercar from a few years ago. Um, there's some other good stuff in there as well. There's a Carrera GT. And it got me thinking, if... You were one of those security guards. What are you going to jump in to go chase down the Tycan? Um, it would have to be fast. It would have to be... I mean, a, a GT2 RS would be the obvious choice. I think there would have to be something like... I, I think going from Andrew Frankel's description, if the weather was dry and they had a 935 with a spool diff in the back and a set of 20-year-old slicks, that could be hilarious until you crash and die horribly. But for that short time, it would be brilliant. Yeah, I I thought immediately 918 because, you yep. know, I'd like to be the hero, take the Crow GT, except, you know, fiddly clutch and, and you know, I just cock it up and stall immediately. But actually <laughs> on reflection, you know, if they've got like a, an RSR or a cup car, something like that, that I could hop in and go, wow down the road chasing it yep. down even if I didn't catch it which I probably wouldn't because you know I probably couldn't drive a cup car very well I just have a great time with the noise so you know there you go 
really enjoyable advert. If you haven't seen it, it's up on YouTube. And I think, is it Road and Track that have got a really cool like 20 minute behind the scenes video? We'll link to both of those in the show notes, but it's a really fun ad. Um, Another ad which came out, which I'm not sure was part of the Super Bowl. I think I saw it online before the Super Bowl. I've kind of lost track. Is an advert for the Hyundai Sonata, which sounds like it could be terrible, except that it's brilliant. They've got three Boston area natives in Chris Evans, Captain America, uh, John Krasinski, Jack Ryan, and who's the other one, Chris? Remind Rachel Dracht from uh, SNL. Yes, thank you. And they are discussing the smart park feature <laughs> of the Hyundai Sonata, where there's a very narrow space and they're going to park the car itself. Smart park, it's called, except when you're in Boston, it can't be called smart park, it's smart pack. <laughs> and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this because there's just over-the-top Boston accents where they're talking about pack and the car. <laughs> and they just start talking about areas in Boston, presumably that they've parked it uh, <laughs> uh, or packed it. And I have actually taken now to uh, when I park my car and I stop, I go, packed it. <laughs> Again, go and watch the advert. It's bonkers. It's really fun. It, the in car content, well, it's a Hyundai. It looks like it's got a really nice warranty. <laughs> Oh, those Korean underwriters, they do love some uh, repairs. I, I have know, to say, if you just want a car that doesn't cost very much and is probably very, very reliable, it looks great and it'll pack itself. <laughs> this is the one that I think probably of all the ones that I've seen, it's oddly the most memorable. It has that proper comedic gets under your skin quality. And even if you know nothing about what they're talking about like I do, it is one of those that in my head it just kind of keeps going round and round and I keep revisiting and it just makes me laugh more and more every time. I can just think about this and start giggling. So a sign of a good advert and if I'm ever in the market for a car that can park itself, I may look at a Hyundai. <laughs> um, the other one that caught my eye, mostly because the Super Bowl landed on February the 1st this year, was an advert for the Jeep Gladiator. Now... This in and of itself doesn't sound terribly exciting until you realise that February the 1st is Groundhog Day. And what Jeep have done is got Bill Murray recreated the sets from Groundhog Day. They've got his brother. They've got the Groundhog. They've got um, Stephen Toblowski, who plays Ned Ryerson. And the idea is that Bill wakes up. It's Groundhog Day. He steals the Groundhog. But he looks across the square and goes, well, that's different. And he sees the Jeep Gladiator. And then every day from there on in, he wakes up, leaps out of bed happy because he can go and drive the Jeep Gladiator. It sounds kind of derivative, but the fact that it's Bill Murray, he's off the lead a bit and it's just beautiful and charming. And we've had, I mean, the Audi advert this year was appalling because it was just... Have you seen the Audi advert? I haven't, no. The last Audi advert I saw was their awesome one for the R8 V10 where they just put it on a dyno, took the rear bodywork off and then just let it rip through all the gears and you can see glowing cats and the exhaust (laughs) blowing flames and you're just like, yes! It's a very clever way of getting around those ad rules about not being able to show cars going fast or being vaguely interesting. And uh, I love that ad. I have not seen any Audi ads since then. Yeah, the one for the Super Bowl this year was some woman from Game of Thrones. That's my ignorance, not the fact that she is anything less than stellar. 
driving an electric Audi, singing Let It Go in traffic, while people around her in road rage because they are not driving electric Audis? We don't know. But the idea that you're somehow stuck in traffic and happier in that traffic because you're in an Audi, whereas you perhaps... I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Also, Walmart this year, they had an advert out last year that wasn't in the Super Bowl, which I loved, which was full of movie cars, but this year it wasn't. Yeah, it's been a bit of a mixed bag, but the Bill Murray, Groundhog Day, anything that does that for a minute, I'm completely on board with. Even though the Jeep Gladiator is a big part of CAC. It's a big orange Jeep, and it could be anything. And that's kind of all you need to know. Bill Murray is the reason that you'd watch it. However, we are burying the lead here because there is one advert that has come out since our last episode, which you are rather excited about, it's fair to say. It is. It's the Fast 9 trailer. They dropped this with very little fanfare. It just appeared out of nowhere, and I watched it. And it's... About as batshit insane as you could ever (laughs) want from a Fast and Furious movie trailer. It's quite long. It's not Mm. a teaser. It's a proper full-blown trailer. But I was watching this just thinking, this is crazy. This is the kind of thing that my son does when he's playing with Hot Wheels and Lego, (laughs) where he's just like, oh, this is a plane, and this plane has got magnets on the bottom, and the magnets can pick up the cars, and then the cars get dropped off of a cliff, and then there's a little rope that shoots out that stops them from falling off and smashing into the sea, and it swings them around, and... Except this is real with real cars, except no, they're not real. Um, It's just, it's crazy in the way that fast movies have kind of gone that way now. This is one of those, hey, you know what? We're going to get the whole band back together insofar as we can. So Mia is back without Brian, which is kind of weird, but there Mm. is a reason why, because Dom has a secret brother. <clears throat> played by uh, played by John Senna. He looks nothing like um, Vin Diesel, nothing like his brother. There's a moment where they square up to one another and they get closer and closer and I swear they're about to kiss, which would be <laughs> weird because they're brothers, but it, it has that very homoerotic vibe. There's uh, Ludacris is back as Tej. I really like him. He's kind of become the, the voice of vague sanity in an otherwise increasingly crazy series. Uh, they've got their beef sorted out with Tyrese. I know there was some kind of back and forth about money or something there where he got really cheesed off, but that appears to be sorted because he's back as, as the motormouth Roman Pierce. There's a blink and you'll miss it cameo almost from Lucas Black as Sean, uh, the guy from Tokyo Drift. He is there in the scene where they unveil the rocket car. <laughs> and no, I'm not kidding. They have a rocket strapped to a car. Is it like John Stevenson's rocket? Not that kind of rocket, no. Okay, that sorry. was Robert Stevenson, not John Stevenson. You're thinking of somebody else. I'm thinking of Don't the try bright... and drop train geek knowledge on me. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna get owned, son. It was... I, sorry, I, I accidentally referenced the editor of Mountain Biking UK magazine circa early 90s. So I I'm do remember that, like yes. Dumb. No, I'm that sad too. I read that. Anyway, <laughs> let's get back to The Fast and the Furious. Yes, um, where did I get to? Who else is back? So we've seen well, Lucas Black. There are some other people. Um, there seems to be all sorts of, of weird stuff going on. It looks like there's going to be some betrayals. There's going to be some familial infighting, which, you know, these movies are about family. But most importantly... Han is back, dun, dun, dun. which is just so cool. They wait right till the end of the trailer to bring it back, and he's just introduced, calm as you like, walks in, eating a snack, says something cool, and I cannot wait to find out 
how he's back, how he has been resurrected from the dead. Is he a secret long lost twin brother? Is he a clone? <laughs> I don't. I has Jason Statham got a TARDIS and you know hopped in, taken him back to Tokyo Drift and stuffed him in there before he blew up him in his orange Supra? I just don't know. Uh, but I don't uh, whoa, 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 care whoa, 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 whoa. because Fast and Furious Yoda is back. Hang on, hang on, hang on. His bright orange what? If you look in the poster, there's a featured poster for this, um, and it's him leaning against a Supra, and he's got a snack. Yes, but what was the car that he got blown up in? Oh, I don't know. It was an orange Vileside kit thing. Who cares? Was it a Supra? <laughs> no, it wasn't a Supra. What was it? It was an RX-7. So it was. You're right. Who's the oh, Brian's the orange Supra guy. Yes. Green Supra. That's, that's the iconic Orangey one. green. Yeah, whatever. Um <laughs> Honestly, you stick a body kit and some flames on it, I really can't tell. <laughs> we are the pedantic podcast. I know, we have I'm being terrible. I really should apologise for that. I should know that it was an RX-7. Interestingly, I was looking through some of the cars that are in this trailer and they've got uh, some Mustangs and stuff in the chases and flying off of cliffs and stuff, as I mentioned. There is a blink-and-you'll-miss-it cameo from what I think is a beautiful purple Noble M600. Wow. There is a massive truck that looks a lot like the truck that was in The Dark Knight and does a flip like the truck in The Dark Knight. Um, what else? Oh, yeah, the Fiero with a rocket strapped to it. I think that may be the joke. <laughs> But I'm, I'm utterly on board for this. It is as batshit insane as you would expect from the current level of Fast and Furious movies. Um, oh, Charlize Theron is back, I should mention. She is with a terrible haircut, strapped in a plexiglass prison, monologuing away like there's no tomorrow, very much like the baddie from Spectre and the baddie from Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Seems to be the thing, but she's back. She is the bad guy. She also flies the stealth magnet plane that picks up the uh, the car. Did I mention there was a magnet plane? <laughs> of course there's a magnet plane because what the hell is this series doing? Any minute now, you know, Dom's going to grab the Infinity Gauntlet and clench his fist and defeat Thanos. And <laughs> It's becoming the FFU. It is. Well, I think literally now they're on their ninth movie in this series, plus the Hobbs and Shaw spin-off. God knows what they're going to do for Fast and Furious 10. Some somebody said that they missed a trick when uh, Frozen Two wasn't called Too uh... Too Fast Too Frozen or something. <laughs> yeah, but think about it though. Do you remember the first movie was just a really decent Point Break ripoff where mm. they did some cool driving in three black Honda Civics and stole some DVD players. Yep, and they, they had spoon engines and they waterboarded people with engine oil. Yeah. How far we've come with this series, I'm totally on board for this movie. I can't wait to see it. I know it's going to be objectively rubbish, but equally, <laughs> I don't care because I'm going to be sat in that cinema bouncing up and down like a little child as increasingly insane things happen, th you know, with cars just falling off the screen, off of cliffs, into walls, through walls. See, I fell out of sync with it about... I saw Fast Five, I think I have Fast Five on disc... I saw the London one. See, I think what I, should, what I need to do is go back to, say, Tokyo Drift, because that's as good a place I need to start, and just watch all of them and catch up and just... You need to do what Richard Porter did. You need to go back to the beginning and watch all of them. You can't go back to just Tokyo Drift. You have to go back to the start, watch that, and then you have to watch the homoerotic amazingness of <laughs> Too Fast, Too Furious, which actually features someone saying, I've got something for your ass. 
<laughs> it's brilliant. It's the one that introduces Roman Pierce, but it's 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 bromance taken to the next level. The women really are secondary characters there. <laughs> they veered away from that a bit with Tokyo Drift, but it's hilarious and it's the outlier of the whole series. It's the one that I watch the least, and I'm sure it's the one they'd probably all like to forget, apart from Tyree's <laughs> reminding them all the time. But yeah, you've got to go back and watch them all. The last few kind of run into one another because the stakes get so increasingly crazy with mm. cars doing increasingly weird things like being chased by submarines, jumping between buildings. Um, <laughs> what? Yeah, exactly. Submarines. You haven't seen this, but <laughs> yes. So before this comes out, I don't know when it's out, I guess it's out in May. We should do that. You should you should try. Not over one day, because I think that would kill you. But <laughs> go back and maybe one a night, watch every single Fast movie. Maybe we'll both do it and we can compare notes. But before this comes out, to kind of catch you up to the current state of the series, that's a good challenge to do. God. <laughs> what, what, oh, my sanity. <laughs> anyway, moving on from uh, from such things. For this episode, we've decided to try a slightly different thing because for as long as I've known Martin, and it's, well, quite a long time. 20-something years now? It's going on a bit. Oh, God. Speaking of things that are nearly 20 years old, Gone in 60 Seconds has been something of a bone of contention between the two of us because I think it's brilliant. And I don't. So what we're going to do is actually debate it on this programme, and I am going to start with... The case for the defence, I guess. And then I'll jump in with the case for the prosecution and tell you why you're wrong. And this is going to be a struggle because it's largely indefensible. So Gone in 60 Seconds, for those of you who haven't seen it, is the story of a car thief played by Giovanni Ribisi who gets an order for 50 top-end cars, quote, for a local crime boss played by Christopher Eccleston. He mucks up the job... So they have to reach out to his brother and retired car thief, Memphis Reigns, played by Nick Cage, who then has to get his band back together to save his brother, pull off the car heist, and make everything okay. There are a number of things that I think are genuinely quite interesting, quite good. For a start, some of the acting talent in this is really top draw. I think we've got Nicolas Cage, who is a really interesting kind of cool calming presence on the whole thing and kind of brings a lot of charisma and he brings a lot of authority and leadership to the whole film you've got Angelina Jolie who for the most part is a capable independent woman with agency who's just part of the gang you've got Robert Duvall uh, Christopher Eccleston who it could be argued by Martin at length, <laughs> is maybe chewing the scenery as though he was devouring an arts and crafts period table. <laughs> but he wouldn't do that because he loves wood. <laughs> I saw this film before I knew who Chris Freckleson was, obviously long before he was Doctor Who. And now I kind of watch it and go, oh yeah, Doctor Who's in it. But he plays it with a kind of um, fury and an intensity that actually comes out into the Doctor Who episodes later on, because I think of he all the really Doctor didn't Who's... want to be in Gone in sixty seconds, and he held it on all the way through until he filmed <laughs> Doctor Who in two thousand and five. As overblown as we could charitably call his performance in this, it's actually quite a good foil against Nick Cage because Nick plays it all very conservative, and he plays it largely quite kind of cool. 
But Chris Freckleston is just like, I'm going to kill your mother, I'm going to kill your brother, I'm going to kill your dog. That's kind of quite silly and I like it. Also, Delroy Lindo, who plays the cop, who... I think he wanted to put away uh, Memphis Reigns before and now he's got this, this other chance and all this sort of stuff. He's great in every film I've seen him in and he's very, very underrated. Brilliant in this. You've got quite an interesting selection of cars. I think it's fair to say that we probably wish that more of them were on the screen more often. But there is a Jag XT220, there's an old Rolls-Royce, there is a, a Lamborghini LM0002... All this... No, it's not, is it? It's not the Lamborghini, is it? It's a Hummer H1. It's a Hummer, yeah. If they had an OM002, that would be cool. That would be cool. One thing, with, with, one thing, though, looking at the cars is that, obviously, it's a 2000 film, so they're stealing a 996 Carrera. And you're thinking, you wouldn't even go for the turbo? You, you know, just the base Carrera? Oh, okay. So there's some of them don't quite fit uh, in the Pantheon. It's full of cliches. The whole thing is, it's... You know, the the person coming out of retirement and doing the thing where it's, I promised myself I'd never do this, but, you know, and then you go out and you get the gang back together and they all promise themselves that they'd never do it and we're going to do it for just this one time. And, and then you've got probably a quite good script that was half-finished because the plot of, uh, itself is, is quite generic and I think that they had some great ideas. They set up the dynamics quite well. The great scenes are great, and they're the things that sort of keep you engaged and keep you into the whole thing. There is probably one of my favourites, which is when Nick Cage goes into the Ferrari dealership and he's making this big play about, oh yes, I saw three of these outside my local Starbucks, and you know I don't want the car that anybody drives. I want a 365 GTB4 Daytona. And he's kind of absolutely turning on the charm for the salesman this scene is how i picture every ferrari dealership is this is how i picture when you want to go in and buy a 488 gtb you go in there just like nicholas cage and you talk about being a self-indulgent wiener <laughs> and two, how two rogers don't make a right yeah that's that's how that's how all ferrari dealerships are in my head the whole payoff for that scene and what really just sells it is that moment at the end when his mask just slips a little bit and he just leans in and goes, tell me what else you've got in the warehouse. And I wish they had done more stuff that wasn't just, we do some magic, we steal a car, we do this thing, this you know, this really obvious thing happens. I've, I'm late to the party, but I've started watching Veronica Mars. It's brilliant if you haven't watched it and you have a thing for early 2000s teen dramas. The amount of social engineering they do in that, which is effectively what Nick Cage is doing, I think there is so much scope for a much better version of Gone in 60 Seconds to be made now, where they're just a lot cleverer, where they do more stuff than just gluing fingerprints covers onto, onto your hands and all this sort of stuff. Anyway... You're straying getting into my territory here. You're supposed to I be am. laying out the case for the defence. I'm, I'm getting my excuses in early. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I, I think it, it's fun. It is a car film absolutely through and through. I think that there are moments where you have just somebody has written something with some passion. I think Nick Cage is a is quite an, a well-known car guy, and he obviously brings that. And you can tell... Not only in his driving, which is which I th I'm fairly sure he was actually involved in. I I've got to say, actually, one thing that always strikes me when you're dealing with actors driving cars, and we've seen with 
obviously the Fast and the Furious now they they do the thing where they put the chassis onto a trolley and they can do all the acting that they want but I think that there is an inherent almost uncanny valley when it comes to watching somebody drive particularly a manual where if the timing just isn't quite right or they're doing one thing but they're not doing another thing or they're moving the gear stick too slowly or they turn the wheel too slowly it's really quite obvious whereas this it's all so synchronised, it's all so crisp that you think, yep, that's actually this. Yeah, you know, you're watching he's actually someone doing. drive. You're not watching that horrible Fast and Furious thing where you see someone mash the clutch pedal through the bulkhead and then slam <laughs> the gear home like they're trying to destroy the gearbox. You know what, actually... This, I don't think, has our favourite cliché in it. It does not have the moment where they change down to go a bit faster or push the throttle a <laughs> bit further down because when you're going really fast, you never have the throttle fully down. And again, I think that's to its credit. I, I, I wish there was more car stuff, but there is stuff where the the scene with Vinnie Jones in the um, in the car park, you know, when they're stealing the Hummer and they're pushing cars over walls and stuff like that. Oh, that one! That's got the really annoying um, one member of the the the, the crew who oh. just won't shut up. <laughs> just keeps jabbering on. Uh, there's also a snake in the Hummer. We should add, which worries him, but not Vinnie Jones. And speaking of Vinnie Jones, as a piece of casting, he's fantastic, I mean, apart from the silent bob bit at the end. Apparently there was a story that in Lockstock there's that scene where he's slamming the bloke's head in the um, car door and just giving it absolute, you know, effing and jeffing and God knows what else. The producers for Gone in 60 Seconds saw that and was like, yep, yeah, he's our hard man. And he plays it brilliantly. He has that presence. He can really just, you know, lift himself up and you think, yep, yeah, wouldn't mess with him. So, yeah, I, I think I think there's a lot of good to be said for the casting. I think the car's good. I think the story is largely good. I know you like the guy who plays the sidekick cop who's... Oh, Timothy Oliphant. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Delroy Lindo's really great in this. Timothy Oliphant is a great actor who is great in a number of things. I wouldn't necessarily say in this particular film. I don't know that his character gets the best lines he no, no he has the best line are you okay <laughs> yes. because you just went through a wall <laughs> that's true that is a great line more more movies should acknowledge that someone's had something really quite traumatic happen to them <laughs> in a car you know more of these car chase movies the <laughs> other thing I, i'll give credit to this also has a really good score it's a very early 2000 oh. score um but it, it opens with a bit of moby over the credit sequence and it's a fun score to listen to oh it's really good and it's a really it's a really interesting mix because it's really listenable on its own. And if I don't know if the album's on Spotify, if it is, you should absolutely go and, go and check it out. But it kind of mixes electronic. It's got a weird bluesy number from Gomez. It's got the the one, like you say, from the from the cre- opening credits by Moby. And there's just a really nice progression. It's a really listenable album. Speaking of the credits, they set the tone for the whole movie because if you watch it now. The whole credit sequence is tinted bright green and the whole movie then continues in that same phase. So it kind of goes from a green credit sequence to an orange thing where they set up Memphis Reign's character. It is all graded to within an inch of its life and it's absolutely Jerry Bruckheimer going into the Avid suite going, we can turn all the colours up. Look, we can do this and a bit of purple over here and we can sort of... Everything happens at Magic Hour in this. Everything's got a tobacco grad over the top. It's all glorious burnished golden hues it is it's very much of its age in a way that i think 
looking back at it now, remembering that it predates... Does it predate the first Fast and the Furious? Yes, it does predate it. And I think that... They, they're Actually, to be fair, they're quite different movies. I wouldn't have said that the Fast and the Furious is particularly over the top in its like cinematography or the grading or anything. There was nothing quite as OTT no. as Gone in 60 Seconds. But having watched Ronin as we featured on this podcast a couple of episodes ago, you can almost sort of draw a line where you, Ronin is very long takes. It's very practical effect. Fast and the Furious has increasingly had the wide, open road, sh- fast-cutting, quick-take format just compressed more and more. And Gone in 60 Seconds is much more at the Ronin end of things. It's longer takes, it's more practical effects, to the extent that... I was reading the other day, I think they had 11 hero cars for Eleanor, and three of them made it through production. That's pretty good going. Eventually, I think Nick Cage had one, I think one or two have been out on the on the open market. So they wrote off all these cars because the stunt driving is really good. I think there's lots of coordination. I think there is more CGI in it than it looks because they've kind of kept that quite low key. And one of my favourite driving shots in the whole film is... If you haven't seen Gone in 60 Seconds, we will refer to The Jump. Capital T, capital J, because it's one of those things where you you probably watch it and go, "Uh." however, there is a shot from behind as a car lands, obviously from a height, off a ramp, and it's properly just bouncing off its suspension. You can almost see the chassis twisting. And you think there's some poor bloke in there with one of those foam donuts round his neck who's probably off to a chiropractor after this. Because, you know, they're not afraid to uh, to wreck a car or two. I know you're going to say you wish there were more car chases, and I think you're right, because I think that there is a lot of heist, but not necessarily a lot of car chasing, which I think is kind of a shame, because obviously when you steal a car, you want to drive it away as quietly as possible. I do wish there had been more driving at speed, but I, I think what they have is very much of its time. I think it's very practical. I think it's very interestingly done. I think somebody's actually thought about it, you know, who has a driving background. So there's some interesting, complex, tricky manoeuvres. It's not Baby Driver, but then not a lot is. So in summary, tell me why you love this. The reason that I love this is because, honestly, when I was 20 and I first saw this, Seeing those cars up on the big screen, it was probably the first car film that I watched that wasn't either either Cannonball Run or Herbie. And it is dripping with cool. There is snappy dialogue. There are cool cars. It is beautifully shot. In summary, I like it. I've liked it since I was 20. It has its problems that we will now talk about. However, there is a lot to like there is a lot of car interest there are a lot of good performances marty go what to say here well i watched this when it came out in the cinema i was super excited about it because you know car stuff in the cinema always love that my main problem with this movie is the entire premise of it is around a gang of car thieves who come out of safe retirement to help out memphis rain's kid brother Kip Rains. This would make complete sense if Kip Rains was a really nice guy who happened to fall on, you know, unfortunate times. But he's not. He is a monumental weapons grade bell end. 
He has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. As played by Giovanni Ribisi, he's a mumbling, stumbling little fuck-up whose preferred <laughs> tool for car thievery is a house brick. True. Let's think about that for a minute. His way of stealing a car is to throw a house brick through the window of the dealership, then get in, somehow get the key to the car, and then drive the car through another window. Subtle. Because when you hand that car over to your employer, they're not going to notice that you've smashed the front end up because you drove it through a fucking glass window. So this is this is scene one in the film. <laughs> yeah, my, it's my main problem with it is that just Kip Reigns is such an irritating little shit that I just cannot fathom why any of these people come out of retirement to save him. Angelina Jolie's character Sway turns up at the docks. No one told her they were at the docks. She'd already refused to come back out of retirement. But then she comes back anyway and says, I'm here for Kip. And I go, why? (laughs) (laughs) I I will say, actually, it's not just Kip either. His whole gang are all Muppets. Yeah, they're all useless. Every single one of them are mouthy little shits with barely a brain cell between them. None of them here appear to have any kind of skills. Scott Kahn's skill is apparently to sit on his hand until it goes numb and then, you know, give himself a treat, as it were. Help himself to himself. Yes. Everyone's got a stupid name in this thing. Memphis Reigns. Really? Angelina Jolie's character is called Sway, as in Bar. <laughs> the bad guy is called Raymond Kalitri, which could be a good name, but Raymond is not a good name for a bad guy. I don't think so. So you've got Atlee Jackson, which is actually a fairly cool name. That's a and, good name. And the guy, again, good performance there. And for the guy who basically has to do the exposition and just explain to the audience why anything's actually happening, good performance. Kip's crew. So he's Kip. You've got the nerdy computer guy who can hack the DMV mainframe. Is that the guy called Freb? No, that's Toby. Oh, Toby. Okay, Toby is a reason why. There's a guy called Freb. Freb is not a name. <laughs> Even Scott Carl's character is called Tumblr. Mm, he doesn't seem to be good at anything other than the fact that he's the guy that knows the guy at the Mercedes dealership that can get those special laser-cut keys. Ugh. Yeah, as story points go, focusing on laser-cut keys is probably one of the least interesting things of all time. Other things I find very questionable about this movie, the bad guy. Raymond Kalitri, as played by Christopher Eccleston, you get the distinct impression he just doesn't want to be there. Say it. He looks like he just wants to be somewhere else. (laughs) I'm not going to say it yet. Give me a second. Yes, Christopher Eggleston and his famous bad guy, I love wood me. Hey! (laughs) A carpenter as the bad guy. A man who restores antique furniture is somehow the scariest car thief. What is he? Is he supposed to be some kind of mob boss? Yeah, Scariest mob boss in LA restores antique furniture and talks about things. Here's a chair from the arts and crafts period. (laughs) Oh, my God. God, I can't take you seriously. Wood's warm. Metal's cold. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I can't where, do a good where, I, I don't know where he's from. Somewhere in the north where it's grey and raining all the time. You know that. <laughs> but there is a good bit where he is just up in Memphis's, right? Memphis, Memphis's face. And he is just the proper bad guy. In that way that he was with Doctor Who sometimes where 
he would just be the sort of funny jokey doctor and then he would just turn and just be like I'm going to kill you all but then the lines he's given are so appalling one rains is as good as another it never rains but it pours where you think okay so that's why you use the word rains in the surname specifically so you could get that gag in good job script writers good job he, I mean, he, and he also, his his whole thing of, well, I'm going to crush you in my car crusher, the world's slowest moving car crusher. You could escape that thing in 10 minutes for all the action it makes. It goes, the cut for 10 minutes later, it still only moves an inch and a half. <laughs> there is no danger of stupid Kip Rains being crushed in that thing. He'll have died of old age before it gets to squishing <laughs> his dumbass brain. Isn't it kick-ass where they have a much, much better killing somebody in a car crusher scene? Yes, they do. They kill TV's Dexter Fletcher in a yellow Range Rover. Which must be a layer cake reference. It is. That, uh, there's a, there is a yellow, either a yellow Range Rover or a yellow car in every single one of Matthew Vaughan's movies. Ah. So if you look at Stardust, the truck that the, the oh, gypsies wow, are in is yeah. a yellow truck. So I'd have to go back and look through... Um, Kingsman, but I'm pretty sure there's a yellow car in that too. In fact, the Subaru, isn't it? The Impreza in the start that um, Eggsy steals is a yellow Impreza. I've watched it recently, so I'm pretty sure it's yellow. But yeah, in every one of his movies, I think to go back to Layer Cake as a, as a little reference there, um, where they had the old P38 yellow Range Rover, mm. which was somehow working when none of the real ones did. <laughs> Anyway, Movie magic. while we're on the subject of cars, my main disappointment in this, other than the fact that I don't understand why anyone comes back for Kip Rains, is the fact that this movie promises so much with the cars and delivers so, so little. You listen to the list of cars that Chris mentioned earlier on. You've got a Jaguar XJ220, Ferrari 550 Maranello, Porsche 959. There's even a Toyota Supra in there. And not one of them gets driven at anything beyond five miles an hour in this movie. Mm. What you do get instead is an extended car chase, which has some good moments in it, but it's with a Ford Mustang with fiberglass drag bolted to it. Can't argue. Somehow, this Ford Mustang with drag bolted to it outruns a helicopter and jumps over half a mile of traffic on a bridge without killing the owner. The car is magic, though. The car is quite clearly magic because then it just so go. It works perfectly after jumping half a mile of traffic, falling from a, feet, a height of a hundred foot, destroying the chassis rails and bending it into oblivion, and then somehow works just for a bit until it is nar- narratively convenient for it to stall. True. Also, how I I wish so much that Delroy Lindo's character, rather than driving a five forty i was driving an E39 M5. He should have been, although I must admit, I really like that because that is a far more police type car. True. Possibly not in the States, he should have been driving a Crown Vic or something like that, but I, <laughs> I really like the 540i, and he you know, he drives the shit out of it, and, and I enjoy that kind of car chase, but it bugs me the fact that this movie, Gone in 60 Seconds, is all about stealing cars, and you want to see loads of awesome car chases with all these beautiful cars, and you just don't get it. You see mm. them driving off very slowly, or you're at the docks watching an XJ220 be pushed into a container. What a waste of such a list of amazing cars. Okay, there's some questionable ones on there, like Lincoln Navigators and stuff, but um, <laughs> it's it's an eternal disappointment, and I can remember that being my overriding feeling coming out of the cinema, was this felt like an opportunity missed with all of those cars. Now, I appreciate that this is based on an original movie from the 70s, which I think actually could have the opposite 
criticism levelled at it, where there was too much car chasing going on and not enough actual plot, whereas this has way too much plot and not enough car chasing. Um, mm. At some point, we should probably go back and, and do a, a review of the original one, because I have never seen it, despite knowing about its existence since this movie came out. I have still never watched it. But it... I just felt like there there was a chance for this to be the Fast and the Furious. Okay, that wasn't around at the time, but they could have been there first. And they just blew it. And you get, okay, the Eleanor chase, but I don't know if this is because I'm from the UK, but, you know, a snotty US Mustang just doesn't do it for me. No matter how grumbly its V8 is, it's still a car that has got Vietnamese suspension and won't go around corners. <laughs> Sorry, American listeners, I'm being mean about your cars again. I I think that there is something cool about the Mustang, and I think particularly with it being a Shelby, it has the cachet, and they've made something of it. It's like does it though? I I, I think it's cool. Is it though? <laughs> is it really? Because I'm not sure it is. I think this movie certainly did something to make the Shelby Mustang seem cooler. And mm. I know that there's a, a probably a roaring trade in making Eleanor replicas, if not actual official factory ones. Oh, yes. But I can't imagine wanting one because I'm sure the driving experience would be really disappointing. I'm sure it would look cool and sound cool, but when you actually drive it, it would be a terrifying disappointment what would you have if they did a high fidelity style transplant so it all came to england including the silly names they had to steal 50 cars what would you have so a 1967 ish classic english car that you could make all cool and outrun the cops with isn't this obvious e-type jag of course an Eagle E-Type. Well, if you're going to go 1967 vintage, then it's got to be an original E-Type. Honestly, I I'd, I'd know I'm not very good with classic cars, um, but I am sure that the E-Type was around in 1967. Listeners do correct me and call me an absolute chump if that's not the case. But it strikes me that if you have to go English rather than American, an E-Type would be the way to go. And it would be cooler because V12. Yep. And it would sound better because V12. Yep. And then when you got to the docks, you could go, I'm very sorry. I seem to have left my wallet at home. <laughs> yes, you really could go with a jack. <laughs> yeah, I, that, would be, that would be cooler. I don't know. I mean, this would... It's 20 years old now. This is kind of begging for a better remake. The problem is that the Fast and Furious franchise exists now, so they're never going to go near it because Fast and the Furious is doing it better. Even though they've stopped stealing cars now as such... They kind of get given cars to go and steal other things or Mm. put rockets on them and stuff. To get back to my sort of takedown of this movie, I just felt like it was a disappointment. It's very fun. And like Chris says, it's graded to the the hilt so everything happens at magic hour and there's always a tobacco grad over the sky (laughs) and everything's all shiny. And there is some enjoyable car chase stuff and there is a great line about being punched through a wall. And I do enjoy Vinnie Jones's character whose name I've forgotten. Sphinx, that's it. Yeah. And he eats a sandwich in a mortuary and comes and kicks the hell out of some bad guys and is generally quite cool. And, you know, there's some of Memphis's 
gang are also quite cool. There's a moment where they all um, oh, play God. guessing games yeah. about what car in what TV show. Oh. And there's another moment where they put a hissy tape of a Ferrari at Le Mans. And I'm sorry, I'm pretty certain it's not a Ferrari and you can't hear it past all the hiss because you didn't have the Dolby button pushed in. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Speaking of tapes, I've just remembered the most surreal bit of the whole film, and that's quite saying something. When all the old guys are all kind of... Uh, Memphis puts on his leather jacket, and they're all kind of getting ready for their big heist, and they put on Low Rider by War, and all of the new guys just go, What? And all the audience go, What? Yeah, I don't understand that thing. And then he waggles his arms in a very Nick Cage style and goes, let's ride. And everyone goes, what the fuck am I watching? Uh, they must have been, they must have had something else in the production and they couldn't get clearance at the last minute. And they just kind of had to go, what can we get? Uh, Louis Louis by the Kingsman? No. Uh, <laughs> surfing, surfing Bird by the Trashman? No. Lowrider by War. That sounds a bit carry. Yep, that'll do. Yeah, what was that song Brian May did for Ford? Everything I do I dr- is uh, driven by driven you. Driven by you. They could have totally put that in there. It's a Ford Mustang. Come on. Oh, I now want to I, get that clip and just put to the, turn the tape on. It's Brian May doing a song that he made for Ford. Oh. Uh, well, there you go. So that's me, the case for the prosecution against Gone in 60 Seconds. Chris, do you want to sum it up and... and uh, rebut some of my points uh, you've already done it kind of in between but yeah you know what i think you're absolutely right there are, are chunks of it that are, are rubbish that just there are there's bad casting there is plot lines that don't need to be there but i still love it and i think actually you make a very good point in that the, it would absolutely be ripe for a remake and i think you could now take the view of you know what we're going to go away from Fast and the Furious. We're going to go away from Need for Speed. We're going to go back to basics. We're going to do practical effects. We're going to do Ronin. We're going to do Gone in 60 Seconds. We're actually going to get some cool cars in there. They'll probably be a McLaren F1 if we can afford the insurance. Which they can't. Which they can't. I don't know. This feels, this feels like you could go away, come back in five years, and you could do this with electric cars or something. Because that's, that's the thing. I don't know how long we're going to get Hollywood movies that are still about cars that run on fossil fuels. I feel like, uh, th- how long is it going to be before Hollywood decides that it needs to be seen to be hip? I mean, it'll fail because the people that like electric cars don't necessarily have that kind mm. of nostalgia and want to watch movies about them. Electric cars have very little in the way of personality because they don't make any noise. See, I think you could have a film now where you and I could draw up a list of 50 really interesting cars and you could do it with things like an Impreza 22B, a Maybach, a Bowler XKRS, just Passat W12. Yes. Like real rare groove stuff. Definitely. But then, yeah, because there's so many collector cars out there now that, yes, you could totally draw up a far more interesting list than they did for this movie. And I guess that's one of my one of my final points is this movie feels like it wasn't made by people that love cars. Yes. I, I think they had a, a consultant that came in and went, oh, well, if you want to make it a lot of their stealing a car, this is how you do it. And actually, I've been finally getting on board with Veronica Mars. The thing that, that strikes me, and it's a really odd comparison to make, believe me, is that when it comes to social engineering, when it comes to getting stuff out of people, Veronica Mars knocks Gone in 60 Seconds into a cocked hat. 
I think you could do so much more interesting stuff than, hey, look, I can cover up your fingerprints with these little gummy things and I can hack the mainframe. You could actually make it much more realistic. You can make it much more interesting, I think. And entertaining. I think it'd be far more... Yeah, exactly. It shows that you can... You can steal things by being entertaining. God, I mean, look, someone described this movie as Ocean's Eleven, if Ocean's Eleven were a thousand years long and moved at the speed of a podcast. (laughs) The problem is, Ocean's Eleven, every single character has charisma, has purpose, has good writing. This is a group of old people coming to show the young people who don't know what they're doing how to do it badly. But this is, again, this is the thing for me is that I just revel in those moments where you kind of go, actually, that's quite cool. There are some great moments. There is some great driving. It is absolutely of its time. And I will carry on watching it for another 20 years. And I will still ignore the bad bits. And I will still watch the good bits. And I will still love it. And I really hope they remake it sometime soon. Fair enough. There we go. Case for and against gone in 60 seconds. Do please get in touch and tell us what you think of it, whether it is one of your favourite car movies of the last 20 years or whether you think it's a big steaming pile of what's it. I don't think I'm quite that harsh on it, but any time it comes on TV or if I do decide to watch it, I do inevitably get to the middle bit and start hitting the fast forward button. I can't really disagree with that. So from one Ferrari to another, Martin, your YouTube pick for this week... Yeah, I've gone with another um, Harry's Garage video because I fell down the rabbit hole of watching a bunch of his old stuff, prompted by watching a recent video he released of him driving his Lotus Esprit Turbo um, off to a mountain to locate his old Land Rover Spectre Defender that someone had bought from him and then someone else had bought that and they'd put it on the top of a mountain near a ski resort. Um, it's quite an interesting uh, video because you get to watch you know, him drive his car long distance and so on. But watching that then made me go, oh, I wonder what other kind of long road trippy things he's doing because I love a good road trip video. And I remembered that he a few years ago took his Ferrari Testarossa on an epic 2,000 mile road trip to the Sahara retreading the steps of a famous feature in Car Magazine and it's a really fun watch to see a Ferrari being used in a way that its makers really didn't intend. And (laughs) this is a classic Ferrari in beautiful condition. There's a moment where he's diagnosing a problem with the car and he's got the the engine cover up and the engine is in beautiful, as new, perfectly restored condition. He's there having a cup of tea, just generally poking around trying to fix it. Um, The stuff where he's driving onto and off ferries and dealing with Moroccan... Um, bureaucracy is is kind of wonderful because it shows the the sort of realism behind the it'd be easy to write that out of the feature or leave it out of the video and it's kind of fun to see you know the sort of shakedown that happens where you need a bit of paper and you need to pay them $50 or whatever <laughs> to get the bit of paper and Harry's a savvy guy he knows how this goes but I really enjoyed watching you know a Ferrari get effectively abused down some of these roads it's just a fantastic sight and seeing it you know being treated like a normal car, not a collectible thing. And I think this was back when 
day weren't as much money as they are now. And I was saying to Chris mm. earlier on, I think this is the moment at which Testarossa's stopped being 80s tat and started being cool and collectible again. And you made the point that Harry Metcalf has probably done quite a lot for the values of these over the last few years going up. Because all of a sudden there's a generation of people who remember playing Outrun and seeing these things on their television and in magazines and going, oh, those were so cool. Mm. And wanting one and buying them and the, the prices have gone up now and I'm, I suspect I don't know that Harry would repeat that trip I have a feeling that the repair bill afterwards to, once they'd driven back from Morocco and got all the desert sand out of it must have been pretty hefty but it's just enjoyable to see someone being so crazy and using their car so Harry's garage um, epic 2000 mile trip in his Testarossa to the Sahara it's a really good one so give it a watch excellent for mine I was tempted to go with Matt Farah doing part three of talking about concrete, where he's building his new uh, car storage place in LA, I think it is, which if you're into buildings and you're into drainage and you're into fire regulations, it's a surprisingly compelling watch. However, Matt Pryor driving a manual converted M3 CSL is my pick. It's not the longest video, but my God, that car looks amazing it looks like the car that so many people have, have wanted it's really a testament to matt that he's able to describe the process of driving it and the difference between the manual and the smg as well as he does it's one of those videos where i've seen that car now in a few different magazines it's, it seems to have gone around a little bit as demonstrator it's but doing the rounds at the moment yeah give it a watch the car just looks so good and it sounds so good and i'm having pangs of of loss over mine but yes that is absolutely my my youtube pick for this week i've got to watch this one i haven't seen this one i it it fixes the one thing that lets down the csl Mm. in some people's eyes i've never driven a csl i've been a passenger in one and experienced the the smg box at full attack and even in full attack mode it feels slow Particularly by modern, you know, double clutch standards. But even, even back then, there's a noticeable lag, and I can't imagine what it'd be like to drive one on the road, feeling so frustrated that there's a decent manual gearbox that could have been in this car had BMW been mm. so minded. Well, it it looks like a great package now, if you're willing to throw about ten grand at your seventy-five grand uh, M3 CSL. Yeah, that's the thing. CSLs are now so much money that you've got to be pretty serious about doing this to one and do you affect its value positively i guess you would do because there's a whole bunch of people that would like to pay but would you pay 80 grand for a csl when they were like 40 you could kind of see it 80 though i know they're a great car with an amazing engine and exhaust note um no intake note really but are they 80 grand yeah i'm not sure about that i'd be looking at gt3s at yeah. that kind of money well when our numbers come up and, and our the auto movie uh, garage is overflowing with metal we'll we'll stick one in then that's it for this episode if you think we've got it right or got it wrong or you want to share your thoughts about gone in 60 seconds share your thoughts with and opinions with us on twitter at automoviepod on our, the Auto Movie Podcast Facebook page or email us at comments at automoviepodcast.com We're going to go and steal a 996 now by throwing a brick through a plate glass window See you in the next episode I'm going to go and get my tool <laughs> no, so, Right, that doesn't sound like a brick Well, uh, <laughs>